If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open it to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I'm going to give you a head start so you can find it. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And while you're doing that, this is kind of the wrap-up of our REACH conference, and, and you'll see that as we get into it. I, I do want to take a minute and just remind you of something we looked at earlier this week with Joe McCaig. First Chronicles 12.32 talks about the children of Issachar. He referred to that a couple of different times, right? And, it, and these children of Issachar, in their desire to serve their king, David, it says that they were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, right? So, as a result, making a practical application, we also, in our desire to please our king, Jesus, who's referred to as the son of David, by the way, we have been reminded this week of the times. There's not much of it left. And so we should know what we ought to do, amen? We should, knowing the times, know what we are supposed to be doing. And so that's what this week is all about. That's what this annual conference is all about. It's just to stimulate us and remind us of sometimes things we already know and sometimes things we need to learn. But what a great week it's been. And we got to hear about what God is doing in the lives of other people and in other places all around the world. And we were challenged by God's word to do more ourselves. And that final night, I know Troy asked for a show of hands if God is calling you to do something a little more than you were doing before. And, and you know, he didn't tell us to not look. I looked. There's a lot of hands. God is doing things. When he says don't look, I don't look. Most of the time. So the question I want you to consider, though, is did God speak to you personally? Do you feel like the Lord showed you something this week? And are you truly stirred to do more than you were doing before? And, and if that's the case, and, it, and I think it is the case in a lot of people, that's great. Praise the Lord. So today, my goal is to help you process that. It's to help you understand what should be next for you. And I'm going to do that from a story from the Old Testament. That's why we're going to be here in 2 Chronicles. But before we do that, I do want to remind you of a New Testament principle just in case you are not aware of it. And that's in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4 where it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, before the time Paul wrote Romans, referring back to the Old Testament time, right, were written for our church in Rome, right, for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So even though we're going to go back to the Old Testament, certainly there's going to be applications. Certainly there's going to be things that we can learn from, and certainly there's going to be things we can put our hope and trust in as we go forward. Now, as we get into this story in just a second, uh, some of you are going to be well familiar with it already. And others of you, maybe it'll be new. Maybe it's the first time that you've ever really looked at this story before. And so just so that we're all on the same page, I just want you to know I'm going to come at this story as though nobody knows it, okay? So that way we build the story up the same for everybody coming through. And it's the story of one of the kings of Judah. His name is King Josiah of Judah. Now, for a handful of people that have been with me, I'm currently teaching 
a three-semester course on Bible survey on Monday nights in our Bible Institute. And earlier in this very semester, we actually already covered the story of King Josiah. So if you're in that class, you ought to just really be tracking with us on this one. And if you're not, don't tell me. Um, By way of introduction, the circumstances surrounding King Josiah's life, I think, are oddly similar to the circumstances that surround our lives these days. I want you to notice that in the times of King Josiah, we're not going to look at all the history. That would take the entire Bible survey class. But just know that the Jews at this point in time in history were rebellious. And the church in the time and the age in which we live is referred to as the Laodicean church, known to be quite rebellious as well. In the time of Israel, in the time of Josiah, they literally were idolaters. They had groves and idols and all kind of terrible things going on. And in the time of the church that we live in now, we find that even Christian people are highly covetous. And according to Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5, covetousness is idolatry. Back in the time of Josiah, the kingdom was divided. You had the ten northern tribes that were called Israel, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that were referred to as Judah. And, well, we see in the days we live in today that churches are divided all over the place. Uh, Judah's judgment from God was looming. In fact, it was soon coming. There was going to be a war. There was going to be a siege. There was going to be a captivity. They were going to be removed. Well... Immediately following the time of the Laodicean church, there's that thing called the rapture, and we're going to be removed, and oh yeah, the judgment seat of Christ is coming. That judgment is looming. But here's what I want you to get. Just before all that happened in the life of the kingdom of Judah, King Josiah took over Judah, and the story of his life paints a great picture of how, at least I think, We need to be living today. So I'm going to show you a little history of Israel and a pattern that follows the history of Israel. And very quickly, this is in your notes and this will pop up on the screen, but but the, the history of Israel as it progresses through this pattern begins with their salvation as a nation back in the book of Exodus in chapter number 12 where they were literally redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. You know that story, right? They were slaves in Egypt, a type of the world, and picturing that of a lost man. They're saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then, and then they moved into a phase of growth. And that phase of growth is the time of the Exodus. And they cross the Red Sea and they get into the wilderness. And all kind of challenges in the wilderness is really the time of Israel's growing up period. They should have done it a lot quicker, but eventually they got around to growing up after 40 years. And And then eventually they lead them to maturity. And maturity is represented when they actually enter the promised land. And with Joshua, they begin to to take conquest over the inhabitants of the land and to take up their place. And once that happens and they're done with the conquest, well, then there's this phase of establishment. And this is the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, the united kingdom of Israel under three specific kings. You have Saul, you have David, and you have Solomon when all the kingdom was united. But then eventually it falls away into sin and apostasy. And this is where the kingdom divides. And so you have, like I said before, the ten northern tribes go away and they they begin their kingdom, which is called Israel. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which encompassed Jerusalem and the temple, well, they were referred to as the kingdom 
of Judah. And if you study the history of Israel through this time in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that all of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were evil. There was not one good, righteous king that represented those ten northern kingdoms, ten northern tribes. But some of the southern kings were good. There was a total of 20 kings over the kingdom of Judah, and eight of them actually were referred to as kings that did well, right? Some of them were good. And Josiah is the eighth, the final good king before the, after Josiah, the swift downfall, demise, and captivity of the kingdom of Judah. Now, that's kind of important. That history overview, that pattern that the nation of Israel follows throughout their history with its varying ebbs and flows, of course, is the pattern of your life as a Christian. And it's actually the pattern of the overall progression of the church of Jesus Christ. But, but today what I want us to look at, and this is the title of the message, King Josiah's Steps to Success. And I want us to be able to see if we can clarify this morning what we should be doing today, understanding the history, understanding who he is and what he was faced with, understanding the parallels to our time where we are at. I believe hidden in this story in chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles is going to give us specific steps about what you should be doing and considering your next step as a result of being stirred from our REACH Missions Conference. Does that make sense? I think God has a word for us. I'm pretty excited about it. So let's pray. Let's ask for his guidance in this time, and then we'll jump into our outline. Heavenly Father, I give you the honor and the praise and the glory, and I'm thankful for all the things that you continue to do and how you take your word and you reveal it to us and you make it clear. I pray that you would take this literal, historical, ancient story of this king in the life of Israel just before the judgment and bring it to life in our hearts and our minds. Help us to see in a way that we've maybe never seen before exactly what was going on back then and exactly how that plays out for us today. I'm thankful for the testimony of a good king in an evil time. And I pray that we would be good servants of our king in an evil time. And I pray that you would be honored and that you would be glorified as a result of the decisions that will be made even in this hour, even in this room. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, you ready? 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we're going to start in the beginning. We won't hit every verse, but most all of them. We're going to go through the whole chapter. Step number one, point number one in your outline. Uh, Josiah, this is really deep, y'all, ready? He sat in his seat. That sounds kind of funny. You'll see what we mean. Let's start in verse number one. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. So like I said before, Josiah is one of the good guys. Okay, there's a lot of bad guys, but he's one of the good guys. And I know it's kind of weird to think, literally, of an eight-year-old ruling the kingdom of Judah. Right? Okay, I mean, an eight-year-old. I mean, what can he really do, right? I mean, is he really making decisions to lead the kingdom of Judah at that age? I mean, is Israel really so bad off that an eight-year-old is their leader? Now, I know where your minds are going. Don't do that. 
The answer is no, of course not. Of course he's not capable of leading them at eight years old. An eight-year-old is barely old enough to start making simple decisions on his own. Like, for example, um, where do I need to be today? Um, do I have to go to school? Uh, stuff like that. Like, eight-year-olds just kind of know where they're supposed to be, whether they do it or not, right? So here's the principle I want you to get. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this first point because there's just not that much to say about what an eight-year-old was doing in the kingdom of Judah back in those days. But Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, is going to give us some insight, okay? Galatians chapter 4, first two verses. Now I say that the heir, like an heir to the throne, yeah, the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. So Judah, you need to understand, I'm sorry, Josiah, you need to understand the kingdom of Judah would have had at this stage of his life adult supervision. He would have had supervisors, tutors, and governors that would have him help him lead and they would help teach him things daily. Yes, the throne belonged to him. His father had died. We'll see that in a second. But he wasn't ready to handle all that responsibility yet. So what did he do? He just sat in his seat. His seat happened to be the throne of the kingdom, and he had to occupy his seat. But, I mean, come on. There just wasn't much for him to actively be about doing. It's very reasonable for us to consider that these tutors and governors told him what to do, where to go, what to sign if and whenever that came up, how to look. He just needed to be present. He just needed to be available. And actually, for all we know, that's about all he did for the next eight years of his life. He just kind of showed up. He just was where he was supposed to be. He was in his place so that Judah could know, we have a king. We have a king, and somebody's taking care of stuff, right? I mean, there's really nothing else of significance to record about this stage in his life. I mean, why would there be? He didn't really do anything except show up. And truly, no offense intended, but that's kind of like some of you in church. You don't really do anything, but you show up. And to be fair, it's what was expected of him. To be fair, it was actually an important first step, right, in the steps to success for Josiah. It's actually a good start. Because being in your place faithfully, well, it is an important step. It's an important step for Josiah. It's an important step for you. And he needed to be in his place on a regular basis. The kingdom needed him to be there. They all knew that eventually he'd be capable of reigning on his own. But for now, right, here's the big admonition. Just don't abdicate your position. Stand your ground. Stay in your place. Be where you need to be. But of course, eventually... You need to move forward from there, right? You can't just spend your entire life just sitting on your blessed assurance, right? You have to eventually do something. So that's our second step. We're moving right along. 
The next thing he did was that he studied his situation. And we're just going to look at half of the, the next verse, verse number three. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, notice, he began to seek after the God of David his father. So from eight to 16, we don't really know much about him. He was, he was just there. But now at age 16, which, by the way, according to the Bible, is still considered young, right? Josiah begins to seek after the God of David. Because by the time a young man reaches 16, he's old enough, oh, and interested enough, right, to start researching some things out for himself. And actually, we just, we just announced the youth camp, and so guys, seriously, this is a really important uh, point for, for the importance of our youth camp, right? Because when the teenagers are at this stage of their life, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, you're at the point in life where although I know you think you're older and more mature and smarter than you really are, it's okay, we tolerate you. <laughs> you actually are smart. You actually do know things. You actually do want to research them. You actually want to find out things for yourself. And camp is a great time, by the way, for you to get away from the stresses of daily life here and just allow the Lord to help show you, right? Josiah was 16, isn't that interesting? When all this started to take place. So he began to study his situation. And so this is kind of interesting because where did Josiah go to begin his search? Well, let me give you a little spoiler alert. We'll get to it in just a second, so bookmark this. But he didn't go to the Bible. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. But remember, he was under tutors and governors up until this time. And you also need to know that Israel is known, right, for keeping a detailed record of all of the kings throughout history, as well as having a rich tradition of oral history being passed down, the stories from generation to generation. So at 16, Josiah is old enough to begin to look around his inherited kingdom and to realize, man, we got trouble. we got problems in here. At this stage in history, at this point in history, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken captive to Assyria. All that's left in the territory called Israel is Judah. That's all that's left. And the southern kingdom of Judah, well, they were about to follow. They were about to be taken captive as well. So Josiah decides it's time to figure it out. It's time to find out why. Why are we in this situation, right? And so he goes and he searches the history. He searches the chronicles. He searches the books of the kings. And he reads about his father. And Josiah's father's name is a man named Ammon. And Ammon was evil. And he only reigned in Israel for two years. Ammon started reigning at age 22. And by the time he reached 24, think about that, his own servants killed him. Now, that means that if that's legitimately his father, that he had Josiah at a very young age, right? Nevertheless, it had to be traumatic for Josiah. It's probably why he ultimately had to take the throne at age eight, right? Because his father was killed by his servants. But I do want to point out that this evil that was going on and and although Ammon didn't 
respond well in his own life, you could say it wasn't entirely his fault because Ammon's father, Josiah's grandfather, was one of the more well-known kings of Judah, an evil man by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh was considered actually one of the most evil kings of all time of Judah. In fact, if you went backwards at chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles, in verse number 9, it says this, So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, and to do, look at this, worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And Manasseh was king over Judah for 55 years. 55 years. And it was under the reign of Manasseh that we actually read about the first deportation of Judah to Babylon. So there was different phases in which the people were taken captive. This, the phasing out of people taken captive began in the time of the grandfather of Josiah. It happened during the time of Manasseh. We read that in 2 Chronicles 33, a couple verses down. We're going to look at verse number 11. It says, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. So his evil, Manasseh's evil, was actually especially evil because he's the one who established evil. Because he took over after the reign of his father, the great-grandfather of Josiah, who was a man you may have heard of named Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is a very, very good king. One of the best of all time. And Hezekiah is the great-grandfather of Josiah. And while he's, be, he's, see, he's seeking and searching his situation, he's trying to study it out and figure out what is going on in my kingdom. Why is this thing so jacked up? Well, he gets back to great-grandfather Hezekiah. And he was very good. In fact, Hezekiah was the good son of a bad father. But he's the one who caused Judah to turn back to God. They removed religious idols. They reinstated the Passover. They, they stood in faith when the king of Assyria, a man named Shennacherib, came up against Judah to siege it. And that's the same Shennacherib that had taken the northern kingdom captive. And actually, they took the northern kingdom captive during the days of Hezekiah. They took the northern kingdom, then they knock on the doors of the southern kingdom, and they want to take the southern kingdom captive. But Hezekiah stood in faith, calling out to God, trusting in God, and there was revival under Hezekiah. Praise the Lord. And what you need to know, I put this in your notes, is that revival always comes from the Word of God and prayer. That's where it comes from. And that's what we saw in Hezekiah's life. You go back and you read these things, and King Hezekiah heard from God through the preaching of the prophet Isaiah. So God's word was still active. During his life, Hezekiah fell sick. You may remember that story. And, and he prays fervently to God that God would extend his life. And it's one of the miracle stories. God granted his request and God extended his life an extra 15 years to live. And the result of Hezekiah's faithfulness to God, they were visible and tangible. 
to the extent that God postponed the judgment on Judah because of the good reign of King Hezekiah. You see, anytime God's people repent of their evil, God always repents of his judgment. See, repentance works both ways, but he's waiting for you to repent first. Your sin has earned you judgment. My sin has earned me judgment. When we turn from our sin, God turns from his judgment, and and that's what we saw. So God postpones the judgment on Judah, and that's why we can get three generations downstream to Josiah, and judgment has not yet fallen on Judah because of the revival in the days of Hezekiah. At least for a time it hasn't fallen. And all this information was likely gathered as Josiah began to search what I referred to earlier, the, their version of Ancestry.com. The records of the kings of Israel and Judah. If you went back to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, for example, in the days of Hezekiah in verse 32, notice what it says. This, excuse me, this phrase is repeated over and over again in the kings. I just picked this one. 2 Chronicles 32, 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So why do I bring all that up? Well, first of all, that's kind of cool. But besides that, it's because Josiah studied his situation, but he didn't study the Bible yet. Keep that bookmarked. We're going to get to that in a minute. He studied books. That's what he studied. He studied books under personal tutelage. And in studying the books, he learned more about God. And he learned more about God's people, and he learned more about how God acts, and he learned more about how God's people are supposed to act, and he learned more about the law, and he learned more about a lot of things. You could say Josiah went through personal discipleship. See, once he learned some things... Well, now he has some understanding. Now he has a heightened resolve to do something about it. And that's the third step. That's step number three in his life. And that's, he started his solution. There's a solution out there, and we got to get started somewhere. We got to do something, right? And so this is going to continue from verse number three of chapter 34, and we're going to hit and miss a lot of the verses down near the end of the chapter in this section, okay? But once you learn a little bit of truth, right, you're instantly responsible for it. So this week, we learned some more about the times and the seasons. This week, we learned some more about the great need in our world. You know what the question in front of each of us is now? What are you going to do with what you know? Now that you know it, you're responsible for it, right? That's what today's all about. Because understanding God's will demands a response. Josiah was affected, to say the least. And so he began to put together a plan, okay? And that plan has three basic steps that you're going to see. Letter A, the first thing, remove the waste. Remove the waste. Continuing in verse number three. And in the twelfth year... He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. So 
according to this chronology given to us in the scriptures, Josiah likely did his research for about four years. Now he's 20. It's in the 12th year of his reign. He started when he was eight. And he's ready to start doing something about it, right? He began at age 20. Now that's important. You need to remember that. So do you know what God did? Think about that. God's looking down, and he sees this young king with a pure heart, but little direct input from God. So God's like, i got to get more info to this guy. Here's a guy who wants to do right. Here's a guy who understands some things. Here's a guy who's willing to start doing some things. At age 20, he began to tear down some stuff, the high places and the groves and the carved images. And the Lord said, I can work with this guy. I mean, judgment was just around the corner. But he's like, hey, wait a minute. Here's a guy willing to do well. He needs some more information. So what does God do? He sends him Jeremiah the prophet. I want you to look with me in Jeremiah chapter 1. How does the book of Jeremiah start out? Verse number 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came when in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, notice, in the 13th year of his reign. So in the 12th year, he began to do some stuff. He didn't know much. He knew what he knew. And he's like, man, we got some trouble in here. We better start cleaning up. In the 13th year, the Lord shows up through Jeremiah, and he sends him some specific word. Because Jeremiah, I mean, Jeremiah is going to be the deliverer, but Josiah needs to get more specific instruction from the Lord. And what exactly is that beginning of instruction that comes to him? Well, we're going to jump down in Jeremiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. Between verse 2 and verse 9, Jeremiah, like a lot of us, makes a lot of excuses why God shouldn't use them, and God says, shut up and do it anyway. Okay. Verse 9, the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, behold, I put my words in thy mouth. In other words, Jeremiah, I'm giving you my words. I want you to give them to Josiah. Verse number 10, see, I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. He's not set Jeremiah over them. He's set Josiah over them. What is he to do? What's Josiah to do? To root out to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, and to build, and to plant. That's what he's supposed to do. That's exactly what Josiah then set out to do. And we're going to keep reading, picking up in verse number four where we left off. Notice the word of the Lord comes to him and he's like, I'm all in. Let's go for this thing. Verse four. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them. He cut down in the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He break in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, he had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel. He returned to Jerusalem. Yeah. I miss this a man. He's 21. And he's like, we're going to get her done. God, like I was thinking this is probably a good idea. God came through and said, man, you got to tear this stuff down. He's like, we're tearing her down. We're burning it all. I mean, dig up the bones of the guys who did it and let's just grind them to powder. 
I mean, I mean, this is serious stuff. Because you know what step one of application of God's word is? Always, 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 always? Cleanup. It's always starting with cleanup. That's where it has to start. You have to get rid of the mess in your life before you can build something new. You have to reprove and rebuke before you can exhort. You know what that is? That's virtue. That's doing what you know to do, even if you don't know much. I've told you all in this church many times my personal testimony and story of how, the, how God got a hold of my life. And I was 21, and uh, I was in college. And, and when I got saved, it was the very first time I ever heard the gospel presented. I'd never been in church. I never had a Bible. I didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. I've said these lines a hundred times, but I'm going to say them again for new people that maybe never heard it. I didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. I only heard of last will and testament, and I wasn't even sure what that meant. If you showed me the book of Job, I would have thought it said Job. I didn't know about Abraham. I never heard about Moses. I didn't know anything about anything. But when I, gave my, when I heard the gospel, I got saved. When I got saved, um, well, there was some dirty stuff going on in my life. And I didn't really know all the Bible verses about all the stuff. But I knew that that dirty stuff in my life had to go. I knew there was something wrong with me, and I knew that some of the things that I was doing, well, actually, they were against the law, so certainly you shouldn't do those. And a lot of the other things were just wrong, and, well, I knew they were just wrong, whether or not I had a Bible verse on it or not. That's virtue. You, you remove the waste. You start to clean house. Let me ask you something. Maybe you've been with us a short time, maybe you've been with us a long time, but for whatever reason, this week, God is stirring your heart. And nobody else really knows about it but you and Jesus and, oh, maybe the devil. But you've got sin in your life. You know what your next step is? Stop it. Uh, it's not, by the way, it's not confess it. It's stop doing it. Turn it over to the Lord and be done with it. Walk away. Tear down the idols. Be done with it. Because when you do that, then you can go to the next step, and that's letter B, and that's to reinforce the work. Reinforce the work. You see, once you root out, pull down, destroy, and throw down, then you got a clean slate. Then you can build and plant. So this demolition project took about six years. And the reconstruction work started when Josiah was 26. That's what we read picking up in verse number 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, we're doing the math, 18 and 8 is 26. He started when he was 20. We're good? I didn't know there would be math today. Okay, it's okay. In the 18th year of his reign, you can follow the story. You can get the narrative. You can understand what was going on. When he had, when he had purged the land, so he purged it, it's done. And the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of jo Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, 
They delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered at the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim. And of all the remnant of Israel and all Judah and Benjamin, they returned to Jerusalem and they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house. So they cleaned all the junk out of the land and they're like, it's time to build. And everybody's going to come alongside and we're going to reinforce this work that needs to be built up, the rebuilding of the house of the Lord. Are you tracking with me? Because step two of application is going to always be helping others rebuild. We're a body. We work together. And you may be here and you may not have fully developed your skills yet to get a lot of work done individually, but you can get started by contributing to what others are doing if they're doing the right thing, right? Isn't that a big part of why we have our missions conference? This is financial giving to the assistance of the building of the house of God. Look, let's just face it. Most all of you, you're never going to go yourself and move your location and be a foreign missionary in a different place. That's not going to be you. That's not what God has for you. Okay, fine. But you can support and you can send those who are willing to go, right? You can reinforce the work of building God's house all over the world by making your faith promise commitment to God financially. Oh, and keeping your commitment to God financially. You can make them all day. But you can make that commitment, you can fill out that paper, you can put it in the offering plate, and then it's your promise to God, you keep that promise to God, prayerfully trusting that God will take your gift to help the laborers in the building of the house of God globally. What a privilege that is. What an honor that is. That's the next thing that you can do. Well, the third thing we'll see is letter C in your notes, and that's to reference the word. To reference the word. And this is actually good. We're going to jump down now to verse 14. So they're working in the house of God. They're working building this thing up. And they're doing what they're doing. In verse 14. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest, oh, lo and behold, found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. <laughs> I mean, times were tough back then. They lost the Bible. Like, he's like, hey, look what I found. They're like, dang, what do you suppose we should do? I don't know, read it? <laughs> okay, let's do that. And that's why I said what I said earlier when he studied the books or the chronicles of the kings and he was under personal tutelage and he learned some stuff, but they didn't have the word of God, they... They lost it. I mean, Manasseh was so evil and the, and the idolatry was so rampant that the Bibles, well, they just, they weren't a thing anymore. They found the lost Bible. I mean, no wonder their kingdom was in trouble, right? Well, this was nothing new. I mean, it's not like God hadn't warned them that this day could come. You go back three generations before Hezekiah and you have the prophet Amos. And the prophet Amos said in chapter number 8 and verse 11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Because their evil, idolatrous, selfish, covetous selves didn't care anymore. And it was hidden away somewhere. The Bible was hidden away somewhere. And they didn't know what it said. They had no idea what it said. And sadly today, even though we have plenty of access to God's Word, you all probably own multiple copies, it doesn't mean that you're really listening. It's possible that you are suffering spiritual starvation because you are not allowing yourself to hear the words of the Lord even though it's available. In their day, it actually wasn't available. But just imagine with me for a second how refreshing it had to be to finally actually realize that you have God's very words in your hands again. That's what they realized. And that's what some of you need to realize. This isn't just that book that some people talk about. These are the actual words of God in your very hands. And by the way, those words of God weren't the originals, in case anybody's wondering. I mean, what would that realization do for a man who's already proven that his heart is pure and he wants to do right? Well, let's pick up the narrative in verse number 18. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord, to do after all that is written in this book. So he hears the message of the word of God through Moses. and all, Remember back to Deuteronomy and all those things God said. If you obey me, all these blessings will come. If you disobey me, all these curses will come. And he realizes, oh, this is why we're in this mess. God's word said so long ago. Because that's what God's word does. It reveals God's righteousness. It reveals his, his pending judgment. And Josiah does what you should do. He repented. He seeks to find out more. At this time, they go to somebody who's a woman called a prophetess. She helps them understand what they're to do. We pick up the narrative in verse 26. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard, Because thine heart was tender, and didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace." Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king 
word again. They needed some help in understanding the Bible. They went to somebody who had better understanding, and she made it clear to them exactly what it was they needed to understand. But because his heart was tender and right before God, he's like, the judgment's coming, but you're not going to see it. I'll spare it in your day. I'll spare it in your day. You see, the die was cast. Judgment was coming on Judah. They deserved it. God cannot break his word, but he spares Josiah from having to see it. So the king, tender to God's word, makes an executive decision, and he makes a covenant to keep God's word and to walk with him. We'll pick it up the next verse, verse 29. And the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people great and small, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. You see, there comes a time in the life of a growing believer where he's going to be confronted with the truth of God's Word. And that truth may just be inconvenient. But you need to do what Josiah did. You need to continue to inquire, and you need to get further clarification. You know what we call that? Bible training. That's what we call that. Somebody can take your hand and help you understand things that maybe you're not exercised enough yet to fully understand. King Josiah's steps to success started with him just being in the right place. And then he learned some things. And then he was applying what he learned, all the while getting further instruction in the Word of God. Now, some of you feel like God's stirring your heart to do more in missions, and praise God for you. I pray for you. You're prayerfully considering surrendering your life to serve as a missionary. I think that's awesome. I, there's no greater job on this side of heaven. I believe that. But we've said this a bunch of times in this church. I'm just going to say it again. You have to remember that a call to missions is a call to preparation. And that includes formal instruction with personal application. So that was his third step. There's one final step, and we'll take that long. Step number four, he supervised his squad. He supervised his squad. So we're going to finish chapter 34 and roll a little bit into chapter 35. Because once you have a good handle on God's Word, you've been working to tear down the idolatry and establish righteousness, the only thing that remains is to help others do likewise, right? As the king of Judah, Josiah certainly had the ultimate position of leadership, but he didn't abuse it for his own gain. He leveraged it for God's glory. So let's finish up this chapter, verse number 32. And he, Josiah, caused all, not, now he's taking a leadership role, he's causing things to happen. He caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Chapter 35, more so, 
Moreover, Josiah kept a Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem. And they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. And he said to the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of King David, of Israel did build. You notice he's, he's telling them what they're supposed to be doing now. He's taking a leadership role. It shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people Israel and prepare yourselves by the houses of your fathers after your courses according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of Solomon, his son. What do you know? Our young man Josiah's went and grown up on us. He's a real man now. He's directing the work of God and he's directing the work of others under righteousness. He's clearly now a leader. There's no question about it. And, I mean, what is leadership anyway? Well, leadership is influence. That's what it is. And you can influence others to do right as well. Now you say, okay, but Josiah was a king. He can order people around. I'm not. Yes, but you can lead people by your good example. And can I tell you that if you're willing to do that, if you'll do that long enough, somebody around here is going to notice and they're going to get you into a position of leadership that will allow you greater influence over more people. I, I don't know if you're picking up what I'm laying down here or not. But Josiah's steps to success, that's our path to growth. That's what they are. Did you notice that? The first thing he did was just sit in his seat. You know what that is? That's just to attend. That's all we ask of you to get started. Just be in your place and show some faithfulness. Then the next thing he did was study his situation. Well, the next step for you is to learn. That's personal discipleship. Be under the tutelage of some others and study some books. That's what you need to do. Figure out the basics. Next thing he did was he began to apply some things. He started his solution. Well, we call that engage. That's when you begin to serve in ministry and take your place and better equip yourself in our ministry tools and training classes. And finally, the last thing to supervise a squad, well, that's leadership. That's leading. Lead others in specific ministry obligations. Listen, here's the big question. Where do you find yourself? Be honest with yourself before the Lord. Who cares what anybody else thinks or expects of you? Where do you truly find yourself on this path before the Lord? Then ask yourself, where would you like to find yourself? And what would you need to do to get from where you are to where you would like to be? It's a very simple process, right? It's a simple decision-making tree. What will you have to do to make that next step? I mean, if God moved in your heart this week, what is it you need to do? Well, you need to get prepared for more. You see, one of my major responsibilities around here is to help facilitate the advanced training of our men and women that desire all that might, God might have for them. And we provide quality Bible college level education in the scriptures under direct supervision of local pastors. And I know a lot of you have heard about this, and we talk about this off and on, but I, I want to give you just a little snapshot of a, of, of a representation of what goes on behind the scenes around here when we're not all around and everybody doesn't know. Because for a bunch of years, we've been running this Living Faith Bible Institute, and, 
And we've graduated some people through it. So I want you to see the names of the people we've graduated through LFBI already. And I want you to notice that Matt Brocker, he's a pastor. Kale Horvath, he's a missionary. Corey Vansickle, he's a pastor. Andy Ireland, he's a deacon. He's on the finance team. He's a life group leader. He's on the worship team. This church wouldn't work without Andy Ireland. <laughs> Craig Warner, he's a pastor. And then we've got a whole bunch of other guys that are like one class or one assignment away from finishing. So the near graduates of are these guys. Todd, he's a pastor. Josh, he's a pastor. Wayne, he's our worship pastor. He's also a deacon. He also helps lead a life group. Chris Tyler, Wyatt Angel, Kurt Barr, they all serve faithfully in the youth ministry. And Vinny Nigro, he leads our New Beginning Outreach Ministry. Huge ministry. And I want you to understand that all of this work, these guys have put in a lot of time and a lot of effort for a lot of years. And it's put them in positions where they can have more influence over others to help continue this work of the Lord globally. It all stems from the very basic understanding of the Great Commission and the REACH Conference reminding us of the times and knowing what we ought to do. Mentioned Vinny, last one on the list. A lot of you know him. He's a guy who, since the time he got saved, and he was saved out of some trouble in his life, he's always wanted nothing for his life except only to serve the Lord and to win souls and to train disciples. And he's dedicated the last eight years here among us, proven that. He's expressed a desire to serve the Lord as a career missionary, and I think that's phenomenal. We've prayed and discussed with him for a long time about what God's specific path for him might be. And since he's virtually completed all his training and proven his faithfulness in ministry and now in leadership of a, of a great ministry, we're looking at an opportunity to send him and his new bride-to-be, Megan, as ministry interns to Albania sometime next year in 2023. The details are yet to be finalized. But I'm just telling you, there are opportunities out there for you. There's things that you can do. There's an actual path that can get you from the moment you bow your knee and receive Christ as your Savior out to serving the Lord in a vocational capacity, if that's your desire. And wherever you find yourself on this path, there's something more for you to do. These guys have done it, and you can do it too. All you have to do is want to bad enough. Now, I'm going I'm to land this plane, and we're done here in just a second, but let me, just, let me give you an application. So if the nation of Israel represents the life of any individual Christian, and oh, by the way, it does, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22 says that it does, right? Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. You, if you're saved, are also a son of God. So the corporate life of Israel is representative of the life of an individual believer. Okay, we know that. Then, what about this guy who's the king of Israel? What's that all about? Well, the king of Israel, or Judah in this case, is the sovereign decision maker. The sovereign decision maker in your individual Christian life, brothers and sisters, that's your soul. That's your mind. That's the decisions that you make right here, right? And if your soul is good and makes righteous choices, 
then you can expect blessings in your life. And you can expect, there's no guarantees in life, but there's a good chance you're going to be spared a lot of evil consequences of sin that other people have to go through. So let me just ask you a couple of questions and I'm done. Where are you at? What do you need to do? Do you need to turn away from idols in your life? Do you need to tear them down and give it all back to the Lord? Maybe you need to start learning some basics. Maybe you need to sign up for personal discipleship. Just when we dismiss, you can go out in the lobby and there's a counter back there and they'll sign you up. Maybe you need to go deeper. Maybe you need to start doing something with the things God's already taught you. Listen, in this church, we're responsible for a lot. Much is given, much is required, and we've been given a lot, and you've been taught a lot here. Maybe it's time for you to get busy and start making some application in some areas that you've let slide. Maybe you need to sign up for MTT this summer when we roll into next year's classes and get involved in ministry. And LFBI, well, that's available for everybody who's completed MTT because nobody's going out of here without proving themselves faithful and capable and trained to be able to handle the challenges of last day's ministry because these are evil times that we live in. And you better know what the Lord says and what he doesn't say and how you can navigate those things. If you're going to be out on your own, it's a tough It's a tough road out there, but y'all, I don't know what it is you're saving your time and your money for, but if you're not racing, sprinting to that yellow tape finish line, then you don't really know the times. You don't really understand what time it is we're alive in history. Because if you do, you'll follow this path and you'll jump on and you'll take that next step, whatever it might be. But that's up to you. You're the king. You can make the decision. And that's what we're going to do now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you take your word and you'd use it in the hearts and lives of these brothers and sisters. I pray, God, that as it's gone forth, that your spirit would now make the application clear. That everybody knows now what they need to do. And I just pray that they would surrender. There's no need to fight it anymore. Just surrender. There's peace on the other side. And that they would just give up whatever it is. Maybe they've got sin and they just need to repent of it, turn from it, stop it, and never go back again. Maybe they just need to finally surrender and say, I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to show up and be discipled. Maybe they've done some of that, but they've stopped. Maybe they need to continue their education, continue their serving. Maybe they used to serve and stopped serving. I don't know. But whatever it is, there's more out there. Because there's a whole lot more people that need you. And we need more laborers to do it. And I'm thankful for a body of believers who, who rallies together and serves and does a lot, but, but we sure should and could be more. And we need everybody's participation to do it. So God, I pray that you would move and that you would be glorified and that your work would be exalted. And you would use us, First Baptist Church, in these last minutes of these last days and that you would see more people saved all around the world because of the responses that will happen in this room even right now. Thank you, Jesus, for the truth that you give us. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.